I'm Dr. Vanessa Sinclair, and this is Rendering Unconscious. Today's guest is Damian Patrick Williams, a PhD researcher at Virginia Tech in the Department of Science, Technology, and Society. His research areas include ethics, epistemology, philosophy of technology, philosophy of mind, non-human intelligence, machine consciousness, comparative religious traditions, human biotechnological interventions, and the occult. He writes at a future worth thinking about. I've just been personally recently thinking about the uh, the position of technology and the position of the uh, resonance with technology in the occult. Um, I was awake several times last night uh, thinking about the like the the current that's going on with like people, the way they think about their algorithms and the way they think about the tools and tech that they're using. Um, and I just kept getting struck by this theme that's been played out in a couple of other people's works, but it's like this notion of like, um, like animism, like old school animism and totemism and the way that we think about like the internet of things or the algorithmic, uh, entities that exist in the internet and like, the ways that we've kind of allowed that to seep back in to the world that we live in kind of through the back door um, without really examining why or what we're doing with it. And I've been trying to figure out, like, I know that there's something that I want to work on specifically in that field. Like I work in that conjunction pretty much just across the board. That's where my, the majority of my research sits, but I've been wanting to try to figure out a way to talk about it in more of a, I guess, a prescriptive rather than a descriptive sense. Like most of the work that I do is about just describing those conceptual overlaps and the linkages between them. But I feel like we're in a place and at a time where we kind of need to be thinking about ways to say, okay, so what do we do with that more and more intensely, more intentionally? Because, well, things are kind of chaotic and drastic in a way that they, I'm sure, have been in the past, but with a kind of level of power and urgency concentrated in, like, very small pockets that we haven't seen before, you know? And global, like, completely global now. Exactly. Mm -hmm. And it's like everyone everywhere has easy access to the ability to disrupt the reality of everyone everywhere. (laughs) Like that's, that's different. Like it used to be the case that we would have locally the ability to kind of test and maneuver and nudge each other's realities, you know, within our communities, within the, you know, the, the city we live in or the, you know, the state that we live in and like a few people had the power to do that kind of action on a global scale. But it has increasingly become the case that we all have the 
power for better or worse to do that kind of thing on a global scale in ways that can be massively disruptive or massively dangerous or massively beneficial depending upon how they're used. And so I'm trying to think about ways that we can do those things, engage those technologies, those conjunctions of concepts of, you know, how we think about the manipulation of perception via language and symbols and art and music, sound, embodiment, and how we think about how that influences our technologies and how it makes the things that we make and put out into the world that can have those kinds of effects uh, differently depending upon how we approach it. And how did you get involved on this kind of career path in the first place? Uh, It's literally just the kind of stuff I've been thinking about since I was very, very young. Like, to the point where, you know, every so often I will encounter a piece of writing or a conjunction of, you know, theories, and I will think back to the kind of very half-formed, very nascent version of that I had when I was a kid, you know? And it's like, we all have these kind of fantastical career paths laid out for us. Uh, for, you know, when I was a kid, I wanted to be all kinds of things that were probably not super feasible, <laughs> but there were certain things I wanted to do. Like, I wanted to, I always knew I wanted to do stuff with, like, technology and magic and you know the the kind of weird science aspects of things and I managed to kind of semi-intentionally but kind of accidentally and luckily (laughs) being very fortunate to encounter a bunch of different people along the way uh, make my way into a life where I could do that Um, you know I started in in wanting like when I was a teenager wanting to do art for a living like visual art and then I moved away from that and started thinking more about philosophy and writing and wanting to do that for a living and then I moved in through that into seeing the kinds of things that were available in religious studies and seeing that if I put you know creative impulses to philosophy and to religious studies, then that was a fairly large chunk of things that I had always been drawn towards anyway. Mm-hmm. So putting those things in conversation with each other and trying to make my path through college and graduate school with that. And then as I continued down that path, I saw that the things that I wanted to be talking about I could link those things up with how I wanted to talk about technology and I found specifically talking about things like, you know, machine intelligence or machine consciousness and, you know, human biotechnological interventions and prosthetics and cybernetics and cyborging and all that kind of thing. Um, and that there was a way for me to talk about, you know, the intentionality of philosophical engagement, religious studies, uh, and the occult, with cybernetics, with you know, so-called artificial intelligence, and to build those things into 
a way of thinking about and understanding all of those things together. And I just kind of kept doing that. I <laughs> kept writing that and kept talking about that. And I eventually found that there were other people who, you know, were thinking that way. Like when I was in college, I met a bunch of people who were thinking that way and working that way. And uh, when I got out of college and was doing that work for a job, <laughs> you know, when I was teaching uh, as part of my career, mm -hmm. I found that there were people who were thinking and working in that way as well and that they were in other programs around the world and around the country. And it just kind of, we just kind of slowly accreted to each other and, and all kind of built a, a network of ways to work and ways to think and tried to learn as much from those people as I could and tried to build up the sh parts that I didn't have a really good grasp on and tried to make myself available to be that for anybody else if I could and yeah, just kept trying to do it until it happened and it's happening <laughs> yeah. yeah it is so, sometimes it is happening uh, a bit much yeah you uh, seem to have a really busy <laughs> summer and and fall yes uh like the, the 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 horsey books tweet you know everything happens so much yeah like, that was pretty much the entirety of 2017 and 2018 um like it was just really really intense um but it's to the point where it's like i know that this is the work that i want to be doing that there's a value in doing this work and and helping get this work out to uh a wider audience a wider you know, experience base for people who haven't thought this way before or who are maybe starting to try to want to think this way but don't have you know the background tools to you know do so to be able to help nudge and say well here are some background tools that maybe you could try to start with and see where they take you um and it takes like it takes a lot like doing a doing a PhD 10 years after having finished my first graduate degree is, it's a shift. Um, but it's in a place and with a group of people, uh, like the community that I'm working with is just, is a fantastic group of people. And they uh, were not the kind of people that I had to convince of the value of this project. They were more of the, kind who said this project seems fully formed in your mind what do you think we can do for that and like that's a way of framing that question that hadn't been asked to me before mm -hmm. <laughs> like, like what do you what do you think we can do to actually forward this project and in, in, in any way that you are not already doing it was not something that anybody had asked me <laughs> so no it's fantastic yeah yeah and so it's uh it is sometimes stressful and it is sometimes uh a little overwhelming but it is also exactly what i want to be doing and exactly what i've wanted to be doing for a very long time and if i didn't do it i don't think i would be able to really look at myself and say you know what else would i be doing if not this i was teaching and i love teaching but there was only so far 
that and the people I worked with while I was teaching the university I worked at and my department heads said to me, you know, there's only so far we're going to be able to go with you if you don't have this further, you know, PhD kind of credential. And that's just the nature of the academic system in the United States at present, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. Uh, and you know, that was a thing that we understood. And when I got the opportunity to do this PhD, they were ecstatic for me to do so. So I love teaching and I, I miss it. But at the same time, if I want to be able to do it as well as I can, <laughs> I have to do this. And what's your PhD in exactly? So the exact program is um, it's STS, which is variously uh, played out as either science and technology studies or science, technology, and society, mm. depending on the program exactly, like wherever you are. But usually when you say uh, STS to the STS community, regardless of how they play the acronym out, they know, you know, where you are and what you're about. So, um, so yeah, the Science, Technology, and Society is like one of those heavily interdisciplinary programs, which is one of the things that drew me to it. And once I learned more about it, like I, everybody I knew who I, who I met when I was learning about STS was like, how are you not already here? <laughs> I met, um, you know, back in 2016, I met some just really, really great STS instructors and people who had been working in the field for ages and they were just their work is just prominent and they were like so you need to be doing STS <laughs> and then later that year I met some more people who were you know working in the program that I'm currently in who felt very much the same way and who kind of heavily nudged me towards making sure that I was in an STS program um it comes from a background of sociology, history, philosophy of technology. Um, you know, you get a lot of um, women and gender studies. You get a lot of political science. You get a lot of, you know, history of policy, uh, science policy work, um, history of science specifically. Uh, this note, like one of the themes that runs through it is this uh, social construction of technology and how that has been shaped by the communities of scientists that have been built up over the years and how those communities have specific values and specific perspectives that have led them towards investigating the things that they investigate and thinking the ways that they think and doing the work that they do in the way that they do it and how all of that has a kind of direct impact on what we think of as science and what we think of as technology mm -hmm. and what gets accepted as, you know, really real, quote unquote, real science uh, and real technology and how there are, you know, again, there are values that get embedded in science. There's values that get embedded in technology um, and how that can have lasting, drastic, long-term effects um, that are often uninvestigated. So, yeah, um, looking at the work that I was doing, um, you know, the work that I have been doing, looking at how values get embedded into artificial intelligence, how values get embedded into 
you know, cybernetics and human biotech and uh, values getting embedded into other technological systems and how the intentional engagement of our morals, our, uh, our theories of knowledge can bring us towards different ways of understanding the world and how those will yield different systems that are not necessarily, you know, at odds with one another. Like they're not necessarily to say that one must be right or one must be wrong. They're just different because they are built on different preconditions, different values, different beliefs, and how they will each possibly have an internal consistency. So I was doing all of that already. And then someone said, here's STS, which is a place that has all of those things being done. Mm -hmm. Why don't you come get a PhD with us and do this, you know, more so with even more institutional support and funding (laughs) for your program. And in what ways are you and like your colleagues, other people's in your field trying to shift that, shift those dynamics? It's actually kind of an ongoing debate within STS, honestly. Mm -hmm. Um, There are a lot of people within uh, STS and the academy who are trying to figure out what our responsibility is. Um, So one of the most well-known people in STS is a guy named Bruno Latour. And he recently put out uh, a kind of big, there was a big profile on him um, because Bruno Latour was one of the people who was instrumental in kind of bringing to the fore this notion of, you know, questioning the underpinnings of science and social construction of science and saying, you know, maybe this stuff that is being done isn't about objective truth in the way that people think it is in science. And that's not to say that there is nothing truthful here. It's to say that maybe we don't get at objective truth. And this led to, unfortunately, being taken up by a lot of people who went on to then use it to deny climate change and vaccines and to say that, you know, well, if these people who study science for a living who study the history and the sociology of science say that maybe there's no objective truth and who are you to say that my position is wrong? And that's not what was necessarily intended. (laughs) It Mm -hmm. was more to say that it was, you know, the, the way that we have gotten to accept the science we accept has been conditioned on certain historical factors. So what if we try conditioning it on different historical factors? What if we try building a different kind of program? Not to say just tear it all down and start from zero, but to say, what would it look like if we ran up a different program of science from different historical preconditions? And, you know, this led to what we're you know, for a while known as the science wars. And this led to this notion of, you know, there's no real ideas that can be said to be true. And there's no like place for critique within uh, the, the notion of science and science history. And there's a, a lot of back and forth about all of this. Um, and Latour recently has kind of tried to come back and say, look, what I said wasn't 
I don't regret it, but I've, it's been massively misunderstood and misinterpreted mm. for the past 20 years. And that's done massive damage. And so he's tried to go about setting the record straight in all of that. And there are people who are in the same vein of trying to say that we need to be proactive and we need to try to, you know, make a program of and like a program of prescription to say this is how we should go about doing science, building technology and thinking about making policy about engaging with science and technology in the world. But there are also those who are like, is, is that our job? Like, is that like, isn't it our job to say, this is what is being done here? It is clearly laid out here. It is clearly seen demonstrated that this is how your scientific program, your society, your community of science and technology gets built. And here's how that process of being built, of being constructed plays into the kind of work that you do that you consider to be valid. And here's what that does to the rest of the world when your project is taken up and is shown a light on and said, this is science, this is technology. Some people in STS are like, isn't it enough that we do that, that we demonstrate that? Who are we to then say, so don't do that, do this instead? Because if we say, do this instead, aren't we just going to be saying, you know, our way is better than your way for these reasons, but isn't our way also a construction? Isn't our way also built on historical precedents and antecedents and sociological factors, factors of power and the political environment in which it all came to be? It's not to say necessarily that maybe we shouldn't say that ours is better. You know, maybe we should say that it's different. Here's another way of thinking about it. And so that's what some other people are trying to do. And some other people are trying not to do really either of those things and just want to describe and want to kind of say, I have described it for you. <laughs> and that's all that I need to do. That's all my that's where my responsibility ends. I have described it clearly the end. I tend to find myself more weaving between all of those things and saying, you know, I don't think that there's any one right way. Um, I think that there are definite problems with the ways that things have been done, with the ways that science and technology have been constructed so far. Uh, and, you know, I think that we push back on that by highlighting what those problems are, by showing how they've come to be, by saying, hey, you know, look at the history of eugenics, look at the history of, uh, you know, scientific racism, look at the history of how certain people were uh, forcibly institutionalized and sterilized against their will because science at the time said that that was the thing that we should do. The construction of the best science that we had available to us at that time said that these were okay things that should be able to be done in the world. Um, look at the philosophical implications of, you know, categorizing people in certain ways, of using certain types of tools. Look at the way that the notion of an objectivity gets constructed. Like the idea of objective truth is a constructed idea that comes about 
at a certain point in time, starting through the 16th, 17th, and 18th centuries, over time, and is built in the way that we understand it today, crucially within those times. Like it has antecedents further back than that, but it, it is crucially built, reinforced, and maintained through those points in time, as this notion of what we think of as science today comes to be. And so I say, look at all of these things and look at how all of these things have had a hand in building up really terrible programs, really horrible events over the distant and very recent history Mm -hmm. and say, okay, you can see that this is done. You can see that human perspectives, human prejudices, human biases get built into these things that you want to think of as objective. And I'm not going to try to sell you a line that you can be perfectly objective because that's primarily what I'm saying is impossible. And so I'm not going to try to sell you a line that we can somehow eliminate bias from science and technology because that's just a different way of saying we could somehow be perfectly objective. It's not possible. We are perspective-having, bias-filled, pattern-matching creatures, humans and human societies. And so what we can do instead, rather than aiming for some kind of pure objectivity, is to try to get as many different perspectives as we can and to try to understand in those perspectives how the biases of those perspectives have come to be, how the specific points of view were constructed based on the lived experiences of the people involved, of the political powers at play within those communities and those situations. Um, there's a notion, you know, situated knowledge comes out of uh, feminist epistemology. This idea that we have, because of who we are, because of the life that we live, because of the communities in which we were raised, because of the kinds of worlds that we live in, a particular kind of knowledge on the world that is just as valid and just as valuable as the other kinds of knowledge held by the other kinds of people who have different lived experiences and knowledge in the world. It teaches you something different to ask, say, a black lesbian coder in Silicon Valley what it's like and what it means to code and what it means to build technology than it does to ask uh, a white, heterosexual man who still is of the overwhelming majority of lived experiences in that same space. And so, again, I don't want to say that you can have a bias-free technology, but you can be very intentional about what kinds of biases you allow into the system. You can be very intentional about saying whose lived experiences, whose perspectives, whose ways of understanding the world, whose knowledge gets brought in to build these systems. And if you're more intentional about that, if you are careful and open about that, I think that you can learn how to 
take those biases and in sociology and religious studies we call you know this bracketing out bias you take those biases you put them off to the side and you say i know these are here i know what they are i know how they work what is that going to make me more likely to do and how is that going to make me more likely to behave and then when you do that you can kind of adjust you mitigate for it and you say okay if that's the way i'm going to be then maybe i question it when i start to move down that path i ask myself is that likely is that real is that true or do i just want it to be that way if it's more that i just want it to be that way i take the time i step back i reinvestigate and i say what other ways could it be what other things could i learn what might someone else know different who can i ask to kind of check my assumptions and my biases what can i compare this against and then we build that in as part of the the system of technology that we're looking at whether it's an algorithm whether it's uh, a physical artifact whether it's some combination of both and we say okay the way that this will exist in the world is as a process of that as a result of that process and as an ongoing component of that ongoing process mm-hmm. and then hopefully over time that will just become the norm the habit that kind of bias checking that mitigation that that bracketing out and saying you know is that the case or do i want it to be that way is it my biases that are leading me down this perspective and if so is that a bad thing whose biases might also be good to have in this scenario who hasn't been heard from who hasn't been listened to who hasn't been believed who hasn't been heeded whose beliefs and lived experience hasn't been made known and understood in a way that would actually make this at least different if not better who can i learn from it's almost like making technology more introspective yes very much so like that kind of introspection you know i know a lot of designers i know a lot of you know various technologists coders etc they're not unintrospective <laughs> they're people who who do think about you know the work that they're doing they think carefully about you know how to get things done but there are also people who don't think about the implications of the work that they're going to get done or who don't think about the social factors that lead them to doing the work in the same way like some people do both of those things and some people don't you know the people I've worked with the people who who code who design who implement these kinds of technologies again pretty careful they're pretty you know intentional about the work they do but there are also those out there who aren't who want the shortest 
you know, point between an idea that can be taken to market and the profits from that idea. Mm-hmm. And who want those profits to be as long lasting as possible without recognizing that, you know, if people don't want to use your product because it's racist or sexist or, you know, ableist or homophobic or whatever, <laughs> it's not going to get you a lot of profits. Yeah, and this reminds me of your your blog, your website name, A Future We're Thinking About. Yeah. I love that. <laughs> yeah. And How did you come up with that? <laughs> well, I was, I mean, for that specific reason, I was trying to think of, you know, I'd started trying to figure out a way to put my work out there and uh, a header under which to put my work out there. And uh, I started this actually as... Um, Patreon first. And when you start a Patreon, Patreon asks you, what are you creating? And so when it shows your page to people, the first thing that you'll see at the top of you know people's pages is so-and-so is creating X, Y, and Z. And I wanted to say, okay, so what am I creating? What am I trying to build? And it's like, is it writing? You know, yes, but writing about what? Writing about technology, writing about society? Okay, yes, but what? to what end? Is it is it just writing? It's not just writing. I'm also going to do, you know, video blogs. I do audio, you know, long-form audio, like things like conversations like we're having or just me doing audio versions of things that I've written or recordings of presentations that I give. I also do video recordings of presentations that I give. So it's like it's... It's not any one of those things. So what are these things all about? What are they toward? And, you know, what what do I want to make? I want to talk about technology. I want to talk about science. I want to talk about magic. I want to talk about philosophy. I want to talk about society. I want to talk about people as individuals, but as groups, as communities. I want to create a future worth thinking about for all of those people. I want to make something that we all have together uh, to look forward to, to work towards, to consider as a possibility and to, to figure out what it would take to turn that into an actuality. So that was the best overarching header I could come up with for it. Mm-hmm. And what came first, a future worth thinking about or a technocult? Uh, for me, a future we're thinking about, technical was actually around a lot longer than me. Um, well, not than me, <laughs> but than <laughs> my my stewardship of it. Um, that was actually uh, technical was Clint Finley's uh, baby originally, and Clint I've known since the days of old internet. Um, we've known each other for a long time online, and. Uh, the work that he was doing there has always been, you know, bringing in ideas and notions about the overlaps of technology, the overlaps of the occult, the comics, pop culture, you know, the way that he thinks about and works with those things. Um, you know, he's been writing for, for wired magazine for a long time and, you know, he got to a point where he wanted to focus more on, his public facing, you know, writing that he was doing. Um, and 
he asked me um, in 2015, which was the first time that we met in person, even though we had known each other on the internet for a while. He asked me, um, you know, if I would like to take over technical for him. And, uh, you know, he said that the work that I've been doing and trying to, to weave together conversations and thoughts about technology and the occult has been, you know, the kind of thing that he's been aiming towards, but that he wants to kind of shift, wanted to kind of shift his output focus and asked if I would be willing to take stewardship and, I thought about it for a couple of days. I was extremely honored for it. And I, I said, yes, um, I've tried to maintain that viewpoint, but also I wanted to kind of shift it more towards, uh, original pieces of output as much as I could, um, bringing in threads of things that were happening in the world and putting them in conversation with, uh, earlier things that had been talked about that I'd written about, uh, that others had written about and just trying to, to turn it more into uh, a larger repository in that way. And that was just a, a shift that comes along with my kind of personality. I think, um, I, I don't, do well just kind of plunking things in front of myself and saying I will take this up whole cloth and just do what has been being done with it uh, even if what has been being done with it is really really good <laughs> I I almost always then start fiddling with it I, I say okay what can I do differently that evokes more of my own perspective um, that puts my own kind of way of living into it. Um, so yeah, that's, that's kind of what happened. And I've focused a bit more directly on the, um, the technical newsletter uh, than the website technical.net. Um, but I still try to make sure that I put, new and interesting content into the technical.net and use it as a, as a home or repository for longer form pieces that more directly bridge those elements as well. And what do you think about the kind of recent rise in occult ideas in more mainstream culture and that relation to technology and the internet? And I think that it's, it's definitely interesting. Um, I'm not super surprised by it. Uh, as I said earlier, it's kind of always been there as a kind of undercurrent. Mm -hmm. Um, but the fact that it's more coming to the surface is, is not super surprising to me. Um, the ways in which it has come to the surface has been somewhat surprising and in some cases disconcerting. Uh, there was for a while with the, you know, the various white supremacist and neo-Nazi groups that were taking up what they were calling, you know, meme magic mm. and making use of, you know, what was <laughs> kind of, you know, 
late eighties, early nineties chaos magic principles and turning them into methodologies for distributing white supremacist concepts out into the wider populace. And that's disconcerting. Mm -hmm. Like that's really, that's really upsetting at a basic level. Um, but in the same vein, you know, a lot of the late nineties, early or late eighties, early nineties and throughout the nineties chaos magic stuff never really got a, a full ethos, you know, and never got taken up by people who said, and this is how it ought to be done, or this is what you should point it towards. And here's how to do it um, morally or ethically. And in fact, so much of it was about flouting a kind of rote concept of morality that you just take up a whole cloth and say, you know, and anyone saying to you, you must do things this way. Um, and so I think that they're in much the same way that the kind of, you know, early mid nineties internet was a lot about that. Uh, those, those things grew up together. Mm-hmm. And so lacking that kind of, even the kind of really real self-moderation content that a lot of the early internet had where people built communities. And even if they didn't have like laws and regulations coming from the state, they had group and community standards. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of the, the kind of rise in technologies that, you know, or, you know the occult technologies that we've seen uh, kind of said, you know, I'm just going to do whatever with it. Um, and that whatever has included a lot of, not great stuff. Um, but there are some things that are genuinely interesting to see, you know, played out. Um, it's difficult, but there's the, you know, people who are looking at artificial intelligence as mm, a way to build intentionally a new kind of religion or to build a new kind of, uh, of magic, um, to use algorithms as modes of divination or to use them as uh, modes of building servitor spirits in digital. Yeah, it's, there are, there are some very cool and interesting things uh, being done uh, in that vein. Um, like overlaps of even just like digital art and the kinds of things that can be done on a computer versus the kinds of things that can be done on a pen and paper kind of medium and the ways in which those can be translated out and dispersed out into the wider world. Um, yeah, the, <laughs> the opportunity for sigilization and the dissemination of sigils <laughs> becomes wide, you know, in a way that it just wasn't before. Uh, in much the same way as we were you know, talking about earlier, there's this capability that is in the hands of pretty much everybody at this point. Um, and those who have certain skills and perspectives and talents can put it to use in ways that were not as widely available to members of the populace in that kind of way before. Mm-hmm.
So I think there's a lot of really cool opportunities. Um, but there's also, as per usual, a lot of potential dangers within it. Right. But I think like you're saying this way that, you know, any individual can see how they can affect change in some way or create something or reach people gives can give people a sense of autonomy and agency in the world that they didn't have before. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Like that, that notion of being able to actually to act and see your act spread out into the world, you know, even if it only, even if you only got like five followers on Tumblr, but those five followers are all across the world. Mm -hmm. You write a thing, you say a thing into the microphone, you draw a thing, you whatever, and those five people like it or reblog it, that's people around the world that you never would have had access to otherwise. That's people that you don't have any other way of, you never before, you know, this past 20 some odd years, really never had the capability of that easily affecting people that way and yeah that the possibility for a sense of agency a sense of change in that it's a big and very important possibility and i find myself having to remind myself of that because we live in a world where those things have happened and they keep happening faster and faster and the changes to them, the expectations from those changes keep happening faster and faster. And so I get to a point where I'm frustrated by people not responding to a, peop you know, a piece of writing that I put out into the world in the way that I would like them to, or people not responding to, you know, something that I've made or something that I've put out there. Uh, as quickly as even as I might like them to, you know, and it's like, I have an audience access to directly just people who like actually just follow me on the internet of hundreds, if not thousands of people. We have the ability to like, and those people are literally around the world and they're people, they're friends that I literally could not have made if this framework didn't exist. And we can put ideas into each other's heads instantaneously mm -hmm. <laughs> around the world. And that's amazing. That's, that's magical mm -hmm. in a way that is just very often forgotten about. Uh, and I have to, like I said, I have to remind myself of that I had to remind myself of something like that the other day. I was whining about how long it was going to take me to make a screenshot of something. It took me 45 seconds to make that screenshot and post it to the internet. And I was like, you know, I should probably just shut up. Like, that's not, like, that was not actually in any way onerous. It was just, I could envision a better way to do it. And then I started to get angry that that better way didn't exist. 
which again, that's not necessarily an invalid perspective to have. It's how we make changes to things. Mm. But at the same time, the way that exists took me less than a minute. So <laughs> it's not like it's terrible. It's just that I could perceive that it could be better. And that perception overtook me so long that I lost sight of what I was actually capable of making happen and how pretty amazing that capability was. So, so yeah. what's next for you? What are you working on next? Um, currently I've got a couple of pieces of writing that I'm trying to get out there. Um, I've got a one that I'm presenting on, uh, cyborgs and disability, um, looking at the ways in which disability and mental health have always influenced, uh, the ways that we think about um, the concept structure of the cyborg have always been at the heart of that concept structure um, and what it does to try to reintroduce that in a very intentional way and to think about what that means. Uh, I've got a paper that I'm working on for a book chapter about the ways that uh, our perspectives and lived experiences influence the algorithms that get made and how those algorithms uh, then go on to influence the rest of the world. Um, I'm going to be trying to get a couple of abstracts together uh, for a couple of conferences that are coming up. Um, trying to get my head together enough to put words down to really just frame these ideas. Um, similar to a lot of the things that we've been talking about today, um, you know, been asked to do you know, a couple of chapters uh, for different things, talking about the overlap of uh, technology, religion, and the occult, and um, you know, one on the ways in which the how we live in the world uh, has changed and what we can do about you know our intentional engagement of technology and different kinds of perspectives um, over the past 20 years or so um, and uh, other than that I'm trying to enjoy the rest of my break before classes start again at the end of this month mm -hmm. actually take some time to remember to relax and breathe <laughs> we'll see how well i managed to do that but i'm gonna try <laughs> yeah enjoy it <laughs> thank you <laughs> i hope to uh, i've got some some family stuff i'm looking forward to uh next week and uh other than that i'm just gonna try to poke at these other projects a little bit here and there and get them done as they get done well, great. Is there anything that didn't get brought up that you wanted to talk about or mention? Um, no, I think we touched on basically everything. Um, thank you for taking the time to talk with me. I really appreciate it. Thank you for listening to Rendering Unconscious. You've just heard a conversation with Damien Patrick Williams. For more, please visit Damien's Patreon or a futureworththinkingabout.com or technocult.net.
our publisher's website, trapart.net. Thanks. choose the path behind you, but then you'll never know your true potential, yourself, the way. As you point forward and the fool loops his arm into yours and you begin walking, is this the message is lost? Where else, teacher pressed, half of a man and he in and or accessible do we just for the and desire it ask him we specifically concrete the seekers another of that double nature charged bring out we is one of i we the serpent is he replies and on our way I'm going to tell you about the so-refined individual. Although the work, study, which two fundamentals, set of rules for both at the beginning and real of, you ended the chapter of the mile above land. Unconscious. Now you begin the lives. Us and you know they are both all and nothing contained. You took the heart from the obsession of the, a step, a courageous step close, a want to know the truth. Now you will know, but understand once it enters a culture's narrow definitions that are unifying filled with sea, place, relationship, shifting of the mind. By the altered, it is in consciousness, the environment, in the tools, control, the use of future, 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 future.